It's my privilege. <clears throat> my privilege to introduce to you Dr. Gary Gilley. He is the pastor of 37 years. Pardon? 47 years at uh, Southern View Chapel in Springfield, Illinois. He is a full-fledged pastor, and on the side, he has been developing uh, a discernment ministry and keeping up with uh, all of the things that have been going on in the world, particularly the evangel, what do you call it, the evangelical world. We don't really know what evangelical means hardly anymore, but um, he has been keeping up on all the trends, and uh, he has been reading a book a week for a number of years. Uh, I don't remember the last time you and I were together, way back there, uh, back at uh, Mission Road Bible Church, and uh, he was doing it then, so he has, God has really used him and blessed him, and I'm sure that you will really have a good time enjoying the Word of God as God has gifted uh, Gary specially. So after, are we having music? After the music, Gary will just come up and uh, speak to you and get to know him if you can and uh, fellowship with him as well and with one another. Well, thank you, men, for that excellent music. Good way to start the day. Glad to be with you today. It's, uh, I'm from Springfield, Illinois. Uh, does anybody know who comes from Springfield, Illinois that's famous? All right. Now, half the places I go to, they say it's Homer Simpson. So uh, I found it kind of funny. I was in Africa, South Africa, some years ago, and I asked these questions at different churches. It's always Homer Simpson, never Abraham Lincoln. And then they said, oh, yeah, we remember Abraham Lincoln. So uh, we're glad to be from, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here today. I'm glad to be away from Illinois for a few days. It's the land of Lincoln, also the land where most of our governors go to prison. Uh, shortly thereafter, <clears throat> so we're, we have some uniqueness there. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy today, uh, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, I brought a number of handouts to give you on this Think on These Things ministry, which I've been doing since 1994. I deal with contemporary theological issues, uh, fads, and, and uh, some heavy theology, some faddish things, and try to give a biblical perspective on that. I've been writing these for years, and... and uh, I brought quite a few handouts to have for you today, but I did a conference yesterday on Christian nationalism with the uh, Master's uh, Fellowship over at Indian Hills, and they took almost all of my stuff. So uh, most things are gone. There's a couple of things maybe back still on the table that is free. There's a magazine, Voice Magazine, from the IFCA, which I'm a part of, on dispensationalism. I encourage you to get that. Take some extra copies for your church. I think it's an excellent uh, magazine art uh, articles on that subject. And maybe you're familiar with dispensationalism, maybe you're not, maybe you're for it, maybe you're against it, but these articles are well done, and uh, please take those, I don't want to take them home, so uh, take those if you can, and uh, <clears throat> we trust that uh, those will be helpful to you. So we're in Second uh, Timothy today, and uh, we're looking at, uh, uh, first of all, the, uh, the, the subject of the first session is the battle against discouragement. And so as we look at these verses, uh, especially in chapter 1, as we begin today, uh, you may have heard the little story of the uh, man uh, of the uh, Sunday morning when the mo a mother went to the room of her son and said, son, uh, it's time to get up to go to church. And the son said, I'm not going to church today, mom. And the mother said, why not? And he said, well, two reasons. Uh, I don't like them and they don't like me. And she said, well, son, I'll give you two reasons why you should get up and go to church today. First of all, you're 59 years old, 
And secondly, you're the pastor of the church. <laughs> Some of you pastors might understand that better than others. I don't know. But, uh, you know, when we, we're looking at, uh, at this, this book of Scripture, I love Second Timothy, Paul's last writing in the Holy Scriptures. And we find really the tale of two men interlaced throughout this book. There's, there's two different men that are involved throughout. Uh, one is, uh, is enthusiastic about life. He's enthusiastic about ministry about serving the Lord. He's even excited about the future. Uh, the other one is weary and tired and uh, ready to give up, if not on Christ, at least on, on uh, the ministry that he's been involved in. Uh, the, the irony is that the one who is enthusiastic and excited about his, his ministry and his life is the older man, the battle-weary Paul, who has been through so much in physical and spiritual ways, and yet he's still, and he's waiting for execution. He's in a dungeon waiting for execution, uh, historically, we don't believe he dies right at this time, but maybe he has a couple more years out, out in freedom before he is executed. But he's expecting to die at this point, and yet he's still excited about all the things that have to do with Christ. But he's writing to another man, a younger man, Timothy, who is, uh, as we read the book here, we find it doesn't take much reading, it doesn't take much reading between the lines to see that Timothy is weary. Uh, he is tired of the battle. He is tired of uh, dealing with people that are difficult, that have caused him uh, problems. He's tired of the, of the, of the struggles that are going on. He's, he's tired of these things. He's not like Paul. He's not a guy with, with all this great outward enthusiasm. And uh, I don't think he's trying to walk away from the Lord. I really don't. But I do think he's wondering about ministry. And surely there was something else that he could do that wouldn't be so taxing. He wanted to lay back a bit. Paul is in prison, as I said, and so there's a pretty good chance that he's not going to make it much longer. He's not going to be around much longer. And so he's handing off the ministry to those that he's been training over the years. Uh, and uh, so, But some of these people, as we'll see a little later in the book, are, are backing away. They're not stepping up. They're not taking the, the task. They're not going to follow Paul and his ministry as they should. And yet, surely Timothy would not be one of those, right? Uh, Timothy's a man that Paul himself has trained. He's a man that has been very effective in the service of the Lord. He's highly seasoned. The Holy Spirit has gifted him. Uh, and yet we find him struggling. And uh, is it possible that even Timothy would not carry on the work that the Lord had given uh, through the apostles such as, as Paul? Uh, as, we, as we look at that, as we think about that, what, is, what does Timothy need to step up to the plate? And when we look at verse uh, 2, we find that he is Paul's spiritual son. In verse 6, he's been given a spiritual gift. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. <clears throat> As I study this, I, I think most of the time people think this gift is his spiritual giftedness, whatever those gifts might be. And that might be part of it, but I really don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about the gift of the privilege of serving Christ his special opportunities that he's been given by the Lord to serve the Lord in many different places. And, uh, and he's done that very well throughout the years. A matter of fact, you recall in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says concerning Timothy, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Timothy was like no one else. Uh, he was a top echelon of these younger guys coming along. And Paul says there's nobody else quite like Timothy. And so Timothy surely is a man that Paul could depend upon to carry on the work after he was gone. But it appears that something has died out along the way. And Paul is telling him he needs to kindle afresh 
uh, this uh, gift that God has given him, this privilege of serving Christ. And every person in this room who, who's a believer has been given the privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as we walk through life, as the time goes on, there are times when we kind of get weary. There's times when we kind of get distracted. Uh, there's times when we're not walking as we should and we get up and down in our emotions. And when we do, uh, as Paul tells Timothy, we, he needs to kindle afresh this gift. Now, how is he going to do that? In the wintertime, uh, I really enjoy uh, my wood fireplace back home. Uh, that gets me through the winter. And I enjoy doing that. And I notice as I, as I burn the wood that, um, you know, if it, the flame is going down, I can rearrange the wood to a certain degree to keep it going. But, if it, but over time, eventually, if I want to keep the fire going, I have to add more wood to keep it going. Uh, what did Timothy need to add? What did Timothy need to be refreshed, to have his, his spiritual heart refreshed and kindled again? He needed something that he was missing out on. And Paul's going to talk to him about that. Paul's going to give him ways and means whereby he will kindle afresh this spiritual gift that is within him. As we look then at his second epistle to Timothy, if Paul writes to him, uh, he's going to talk about a man of God, a man of God who, who is facing the hardships of life, the hardships of ministry, and yet a man of God who should compete, complete the tasks that are set before him. And like Paul, as he comes to the last chapter, which we'll look at this afternoon, he says, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. That ought to be on the agenda of every man in this room. That when we come to the end of our, our run on this life, we can say, I've kept that faith, I've finished the course, I've run the race that has been set before me. And Paul exhibits that. But in, in the process, what does the man of God look like as they go through this life living for the Lord? What does he look like? And if we had the time, we're all going to get to hit the highlights of this book. <clears throat> but as we go through it, I think there's five outstanding characteristics of the man of God the person of God who is ministering and living for the Lord as they should. And we'll hit, the, hit some of these more aggressively than others. But the first one is that expect to be in constant trouble. In verse 8, he talks about that, that, that he is uh, not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He's in, Paul is in constant trouble, always being, getting kicked out of somewhere, always being beaten, always being sent to prison. Uh, and Timothy is not necessarily going to be exempt from that. He's, he's going to be in constant trouble. Don't, don't be surprised as you serve the Lord. Maybe as you serve the Lord more passionately that you find yourself often in trouble. Secondly, uh, he has his ministry centered around the things that matter, Jesus Christ and the gospel. In, uh, in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1 is one of the most important passages in all the word of God on the gospel. Now, this is not one most people turn to, but I want you to, to read that later on. I was going to preach on that at the second session, and somewhere along the line, I lost my whole folder with all my notes on that passage of Scripture. So apparently, the Lord didn't want you to hear that sermon, and uh, I'm assuming I left that folder behind in the, in the hotel back in Lincoln, and I'm hoping that some uh, maid or somebody goes in there, finds this sermon folder on the gospel, and gets saved. Wouldn't that be cool? I'll never know that, probably, but uh, nevertheless, I'm not going to be preaching on that passage, but I encourage you to look at it. What a perfect uh, picture of the gospel and all that's enfolded in that, and we need to center our ministries around the gospel and around Jesus Christ, 
not all these myriads of other things that distract us from the central theme of what we're about. And then thirdly, we need to understand the dangers that are in front of us. We'll talk about that uh, later on today. The dangers in front of us. We are, we are surrounded by myriads of dangers and, and enemies and false teachers and so forth that want to turn us away from the truth, that want to muddle the gospel, that want to, to uh, get us all involved in, in teachings and ideas and fads and trends that do not come from the scriptures. And we must be aware of that, folks. We really must be aware of that. And then my favorite sermon on this subject is number four. And the, four, the fourth thing that uh, we need to see as an outstanding characteristic of a man of God, and that is that we must be convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God. And I hope by the time we're done today, that if you're not already there, and I'm sure many of you are, that you are convinced more than ever before of the transforming power of the Word of God. I think some of the things that really get us into trouble in our churches and in our spiritual lives, if we don't believe that, we believe in all sorts of other things that we want to focus our attention on, things that we think will help us, things that will help our churches, things that will guide us as men. Uh, and we get off on these other things, and we don't really turn back too often, if we're not careful, to the, to the fact of the matter that the transforming power of God's Word is what God uses to shape us, to change us, and to direct us. And then finally, the last characteristic of the man of God is he fights the good fight. That is chapter 4, verses 6 to 22. We, he fights the good fight. There are many battles in this life to be concerned about. We have many things on our minds today. As you come in here right now today, most of you have things on your hearts and your minds. Uh, turning your attention back to the Word of God is not easy. Uh, today, tomorrow as you go to your church services and so forth, where we come in with these agendas and we come in with these things we're battling about and, and dealing with and worried about and so forth. But there's one great battle. There's the good fight. There's the excellent fight. There's the perfect fight that you and I need to be involved in. And we'll look at that uh, at the closing message tomorrow, uh, this afternoon. So we're going to turn back now to chapter 1 and verse 8 and look at this first characteristic of the man of God. And that is that he is in constant trouble. Someone has said the man of God is either in trouble or coming out of trouble or going into trouble all the time. And some of you probably recognize that in your own life. Trouble just goes with the territory as of the Christian, of the man of God, because we're fighting powerful and resistant enemies. The devil does not want us to per persevere. He does not want us to be men of God. He does not want us to be husbands and fathers that, uh, that exhibit what Scripture says we ought to be. And we minister and, and live among people that Scripture describes as sheep. And sheep, that's not a compliment. Uh, sheep are constantly getting lost and distracted and, and confused. They, they can't take care of themselves. And we, we live among sheep. And we are sheep ourselves. Even the pastors and the leaders of, of our churches, we are, we are shepherd sheep, but we're sheep as well. And so even with our best of intentions, uh, we are uh, dealing with great battles and great uh, struggles. And the church is messy. Uh, we find today the trend is that people leave churches in, in droves. Uh, every statistic of recent times tells us that the nuns uh, who are, are leaving NONES are people who are claiming to be spiritual, claiming to be Christians sometimes, but they do not go to church any longer. 
They don't see the need for the local church. They don't see the need for the body of Christ. Uh, they're spiritual, but they're, they're not uh, involved with, the, with organized religion. The church is messy. The church has messy people. Uh, we tend to lose our direction in our churches, uh, and it's easy to be distracted from that. We're kind of like children. If you have children, small children or grandchildren, or you work in the toddler department here at church at all, you know what children are like. At, at, at our home, when our grandchildren were younger, they'd come to a room where we had all the toys, and they'd open up the closet where the toys were. They would drag out everything in the closet, play with each item for about 30 seconds, move to the next, and after about 40 minutes, pr pronounce themselves as bored. What else have you got? You know, and we're like that. We're easy. We want to always be entertained, and we're easily bored. Therefore, don't be surprised after having laid this groundwork. Don't be surprised, men, that, that you're tempted at times to give up. Not always to give up on Christ, but to give up on serving Christ as he wants us to serve him. And we see that in verse 6. He says, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This fire in Timothy is dying out. Now, Timothy is a, a true man of God. I, I would hate to stack myself up beside Timothy. He's a true man of God, but the flames are dying out in Timothy. Don't be surprised that happens to you. It's like going on vacation. You know how that is? You, you start out with great enthusiasm. You're all excited to get out of town, to go somewhere exciting, to have a neat trip, to get on the beach somewhere, or out in the mountains, or wherever you want to go. And uh, it's great for about an hour. You get down the road and the car's starting to mess up. You can't find the right restaurant. You get to the airport and your, plane, your flight is delayed. You get to the beach and it's raining. You know, the, th the enthusiasm drifts out in a hurry and those kinds of things. So the Christian life is often like that. We're all excited about it, especially early on. And then reality sets in and we see the struggles that are there. And when we do that, we sometimes begin to find the flame dying out. What did Timoth what Timothy need to know? What did Paul say to him? He said, I want you to kindle afresh this gift, this gift of serving Christ, this privilege that is his. Now, I've already touched on this verse, but I want to add one more thought here. I want you to note that Paul is telling Timothy, it is your responsibility to, to kindle this flame. It is not your pastor's responsibility. It's not the responsibility of other people. And you can't blame it on, on the difficulties that surround you. You are called yourself to rekindle this gift that you have in front of you. This gift that God has given you. And you say, well, I'd like to, but you know, life is tough. You know, and, and I, there's things that are going on. And, you know, we, and, we, and we bump into things in the Christian life that, that really upset, upset us at times. But you know, uh, if you had a cup here and you didn't know what was in it, and I bump it and the, the contents come out, then you would know what's in the cup, whether it's coffee or tea or whatever. I, I didn't bring anything up because Ryan said he'd, he'd take me out and beat me up in the parking lot. So I, I didn't bring anything up here. But um, if, I did, if I were, you could see what's in the cup by it spilling out. The bumps of life tell us what's in there. When you face the bumps, when somebody bumps you, when somebody hurts you, when life gets tough, you now see what's going on in your heart. And that is a gift from God. 
I like what Paul Tripp says. He says, God's primary goal is not changing our situations and relationships so that we can be happy, but changing us through the situations and relationships so that we can be holy. So God's, God's calling is not necessarily for us to always be happy, but he's working to bring us to the place of holiness. What did Timothy need to do? He needed to, need to step up. I like the name of your conference here. Man up, step up, rekindle that flame that is dying out. Secondly, he tells him another imperative, don't be ashamed of the Lord or of Paul. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Could it be possible that Timothy was a bit embarrassed by the Lord? Think about that. You ever been embarrassed by the Lord to, to proclaim yourself a Christian among others, other people that don't know Christ? We know that from other passages that the Jews thought Christ and the gospel and the cross was, was absolutely scandalous. They wanted nothing to do with it. The uh, Gentiles, the Greeks, thought it was unbelievably stupid. How could anybody with a brain believe this stuff? And in that environment, Timothy ministered. In that environment today, we minister because we are increasingly in, in America seeing a, 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 world, a world that's more secular, more rejecting of Christ, that see the gospel and Christ as ridiculous. And we don't necessarily want to be seen that way, do we? And so is it possible that Timothy is ashamed of the Lord? Is it possible that he's, verse 8, he's ashamed of Paul? Well, I could see why. Everywhere Paul went, he got beat up. You know, everywhere he went, they kicked him out of town. They threw him in jail. They, they beat him up. Maybe there's reasons for that. You know, and Timothy didn't necessarily want to identify with that. And given his disposition, he is not like Paul. And so he is concerned. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. Okay, so what does Timothy need to hear to rekindle this flame, to step up in this environment? What do you and I need to hear? I think man up is a pretty good word here. The word of timidity is a word for cowardness. Timothy is being a coward. Timothy doesn't want others to know what he's about. He doesn't like the ministry he's involved in. It's getting difficult. And he's saying the Lord, when he's in charge, does not give us a spirit of cowardness. We're not cowards when the Lord is in charge of our life. We're not timid in that way. And I think that's an important message right now because I believe that uh, much of our country, Christian or non-Christian, many Christians live in fear. We fear our government. We fear the world's structure and what's going on around the world. Uh, we fear what's happening in our finances. We fear everything. Fear is engulfing much of America and much of the Christian world. But we're not just Americans, we're Christians. We're not called to be cowards. We're not called to be fearful and timid. And so Paul turns to him and he says, God is not, when the Spirit's in charge, giving you the spirit of timidity or cowardness. What kind of spirit does the Lord give us when he's in charge? Well, look at the rest of the verse. But of power and love and discipline. So we can know when the Spirit is at work in our lives because we have the spirit of power. That's a word for energy. 
He energizes us to, to live the Christian life that we cannot live on our own power. He gives us the spirit of love to love those that don't love us, to love those that make our life difficult, to love those that are different from us, even in our churches. He gives us a spirit of discipline, which is found, uh, this word only found in the New Testament, but it's the idea of control. The Lord gives us the ability not, to not be at the mercy of our passions, of our emotions. He gives us the power to have control. Uh, John MacArthur writes on this verse, he says, God has given us power to be effective in his service, love to have the right attitude toward him and others, and discipline to focus and apply every part of our lives according to his will. What does Timothy need? Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or as me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy is going to be suffering according to the things because he's walking with God. We'll look at that later. But what he needs right here is the power of God. Paul's going to talk about that quite a bit. And we'll look at some other verses later on that. But he needs the power of God that you and I all need because the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible to live the Christian life without his power. And we need that power. And he calls on that power for him there. You know, I'm using a very nice microphone here. It's a, these things are expensive, by the way. They're a power pack that goes with this. And, uh, and I, I was speaking somewhere using something very similar to this. We could not get the system to work. And no matter what the technicians tried, it wouldn't work. And then somebody said, maybe it's the battery. And they opened up the case and there was no battery. Okay, well, there's your problem. This thing, I don't know what it's cost. We have some at the church that cost $1,000. I don't know what this one costs, but they're not cheap. It's good technology, but without a power source, it goes nowhere. Timothy was missing out on the power source. He, he knew what to do. He had done it before. He was doing it well, but something was missing, and that was the power of the Spirit that he needed. I'll come back to that next session. But I want to look now with you at verse 13. Here's another imperative. He was to, to kindle the gift that, that God had given him. He was not to be ashamed of the Lord or of Paul. Thirdly, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. What a wonderful verse verse 13 is. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. Now this is the first mention of truth in Timothy, 2 Timothy. But it will not be the last. Uh, he will speak of the, of the word of God in chapter 2, verse 9. He will speak of the word of truth in chapter 2, verse 15. He will give us the key passage in all the Bible on the inspiration of Scripture and the power of the word of God in chapter 3, verse 16. He will call on Timothy to preach the word and to preach truth in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And so to retain this standard of sound words is not something that's, that's not going to be brought back up again later. Here's our problem, guys, and Timothy, I think, was facing this, and we face it today, is that theology, doctrine, sound words is out. You're not going to build many big churches on the teaching of God's word. Ch big churches are built on, on other things, and people don't want to hear theology. They don't want to hear truth. Give us something practical. 
Give, give us something that, that uh, you know, uh, we, 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 is pragmatic, some, something that we really like to hear. Tell us how we can be successful, how we can handle our money better, how we can be happier, and how we can thrive. Give us that. You can build a great church on that if you have the right dynamics and the right program. Brian McLaren, who was the uh, kind of the godfather of the emergent movement a few years ago, said concerning doctrine, he said it's like something stuffed and mounted on a wall, some old dusty dead thing on the wall. He want, we need something fresh, not the theology of the scriptures. Rob Bell wrote a book a few years ago teaching us a whole new way to read the Bible, and it was mostly heretical stuff that he gave us. And so theology's out. Teaching of God's word is out. But look at what he says in verse 13. You retain the standard of sound words. It's not up to us to create something new and, and creative. It's up to us to retain that which God has given us, to live it, to stand by it, to teach it. And then Timothy was dealing also under this rubric, he was dealing with speculators or people that were trendy. Chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Verse 23, chapter 2. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Timothy was dealing with see, these new progressive types who had come along with new fads and new ideas and new theology that seemed fresh and exciting. If these people were around today, they'll be using Twitter and, and all the blogs and all the podcasts and all the, all the media they could use to get their fresh ideas out there. Timothy, all he had to offer was this dry, dusty truth of God's word. And a lot of people didn't want to hear it. They wanted to hear something new. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. It leads to further ungodliness. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says to, the, to them, I want you to avoid these kinds of people. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Don't get caught up, he's telling Timothy, and he's telling us, with the side issues. It's very easy for us to become Twitter Christians if you're younger. And, and you're getting involved in all these discussions and these debates and these arguments and these, uh, these side issues. Don't get caught up in some fad that comes and goes every few years. With a, with a new set of leaders and so forth. Don't get caught up in those kinds of things. You be a person who retains the standard of sound words. You be a person who lives on the basis of what God has already given us in his word, and you proclaim it to other people as well. That's what Paul had taught him, and that's what he should, should continue to do. There's all sorts of other imperatives in our text I'll skip over for now, but, but I want you to note that Timothy, that Paul does not back off from Timothy. Timothy's struggling. Timothy's down. Paul does not back off and give him an easy road. He challenges him with directions and instructions and commandments time after time after time after time. Matter of fact, I think I'll just quickly read some of those that are going to come up. You can't, can't follow all these, but here's some more things he's going to tell him to do. Guard the treasure entrusted to him. 114. Be strong in Christ's grace. 2.1. Flee temptations. 2.22. Pursue righteousness. 2.22. Realize the dangers of the time. 3.1. Be sober. 4.5. Endure hardship. 4.5. Do the work of an evangelist. 4.5. 4.15. Uh, 
Fulfill his ministry, 4.5. Be on guard, 4.15. No backing off here. He doesn't give any slack to Timothy. He doesn't say, poor, poor Timothy, you're going through a hard time. He basically says, man up and do the things that God has called him to do. These are strong statements, but this is the medicine he needed to hear. When we go to the doctor and we're sick, we don't want the doctor to tell us what we want to hear. We want him to tell us what we need to hear. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy at this point. You know, I'm reminded of one of the strongest uh, condemnations in all the Old Testament. You remember it? Jeremiah 6.14. He condemns the false teachers, the false shepherds by saying this, you have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Too many people are coming along and giving us a false assurance rather than giving us the sound words that, it, that give us true life. So don't be surprised if you're going to live God's way that there are times you're tempted to give up. Timothy was, and Paul directs him to the sound words of Scripture. Secondly, don't be surprised when you suffer for Christ. We go back to chapter 1, verse 8 again, and he brings up this fact that, that he should join him as for in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul's suffering. He doesn't tell Timothy he will not suffer. He never, Paul is never in despair, and he, calls, he pulls no punches. He says, Timothy, join me in suffering for the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Hardship as a good soldier. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, uh, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. He suffered. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he says this, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to give, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, this is not a um, happy, clappy vert, a passage of Scripture, is it? It's not a, it's not a message that says, Look, uh, you walk with Christ and things just get easier and easier and easier. Instead, he says, If you're going to walk with Christ, you may very well suffer hardship for the Lord Jesus. And he doesn't say in any way that that's something that we should avoid. He, he challenges him to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of us never suffered in any, any great way, have we? But we've never faced great persecutions and great sufferings. But there is one thing that I probably, most of you, if you've really walked with Christ, perhaps have suffered. And Paul points this out for himself at the end of chapter 1. If you walk with Christ and live for him, and if you've come out of an environment of unbelievers you may very well lose some of your best friends, maybe even family members. You may be abandoned by your friends. And so he warns him of this. And so we see this in verses, verse 15, for example. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me among those who are flagellous and hermogenes. Have you ever poured your life into someone who turned around and stabbed you in the back? who just, just turned on you for no reasons that you can think of except you're trying to help them walk with Christ and they turned on you for that. A few years ago, we had a young man come to our church for a while and he, he seemed to get involved and um, we ministered to him. He'd had quite a past, 
And although he claimed to be a Christian, and I hope he was, uh, he, uh, he had been in a pretty rough situation throughout life. And he had had a DUI some years earlier, lost his license, had a hard time keeping a job. He had a wife and a couple kids. And so as he got involved in our church, uh, he got a job. One of our men got him a good job. The problem was he couldn't drive to the job, and it was early morning. And so we had three of our men, two of them hardly even knew him, and one was, had been his friend who had brought him, but three men who volunteered to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning uh, throughout the week to take this man to church. Uh, the only other option was that his wife would have to get up at 5 in the morning with two small children and drive him across town to work. Very difficult. So these men, self-sacrificially, officially, began to minister to him in this way. And for weeks, even months, they picked him up, 5.30 in the morning, took him to work. And yet this man, his name was Zach, systematically pulled away from church more and more, became more critical of the things at, at church and stopped coming altogether. Our men began to talk to him about Christ. They began to, to share the message of the gospel with him and talk to him about where he was. This offended him deeply. That these men drove him to work, that was fine. That they wanted to talk about whatever, that's fine. But to talk about Christ, that's judgmental. Now, that's harsh. Don't come down on me. And so he began to dismiss his drivers. Uh, one, one day he said to one guy, don't ever pick me up again. Don't, don't come back. And so he didn't. About a week later, he, he dismissed the second guy and said, don't come back. I don't need you to drive me. I'll manage and then finally he dismissed the third guy who had who'd been his friend for a number of years said, I, I don't need this. I want you to stay away from me. Now in that process, a number of things happened. In his bitterness and his anger, he put on uh, a social media awful things about our church and how our church people were dominating and, and critical and judgmental and harsh to him. That had been nothing further from the truth than that. These men had self-sacrificed their time and their sleep to help. The whole church had been wrapped around him and his, his family trying to help them. I had been a friend to him, had him in my home several times. But, but he put out there on the media something that cannot be erased, apparently. It still, hasn't, it's still on there several years later about how horrible our church is and, and the leaders of our church and the men of our church that reached out to him in that regard. And then... Shortly thereafter, he lost his job. He couldn't get to work. He started drinking heavily again, and sadly, he took his own life. To this day, this man that we reached out to and spent all sorts of time with is uh, now a man who, uh, who's, who's gone. I told he knows Christ, knew Christ. I don't know. But he's a man who is angry at people that tried to love him and help him. Does that ever, ever happen to you, something like that? It will if you serve Christ long enough. If you really care about people, get involved in their lives, try to direct them to the things of Christ, some people will turn on you, and that happens. And Paul was not exempt from that. So he mentions two men uh, that had turned away from him in verse 15. Uh, these men, uh, we don't know, honestly, if you look at the text, we don't know for sure if these men turned away from the Lord or just Timothy or just Paul or maybe, maybe both. Uh, we can't be sure, but they definitely turned away from Paul and probably were highly critical of him. But on the other hand, there was another man by the name of Onesiphorus who did just the opposite. We pick up his life in verse 16 
The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well that what services he rendered at Ephesus. And so here's a man, we don't know all that he did, but he ministered to the needs of, of the Apostle Paul who served Christ. That man will find mercy, Paul said, and twice he mentions him finding mercy from the Lord. The other two men, well, they're going to face consequences for what they've done. Now, what's the application of that? Well, he's turning to Timothy. Remember, he's trying to encourage Timothy. So let me kind of back up to, all the way back up to verse 2 of chapter 1. Kind of follow along with me. Paul's writing to this son in the faith, the one he's trained, the one he wants to hand off uh, future ministries to because he's going to be gone soon. And if this beloved son in the faith, verse 2, the one he prays for night and day, verse 3, do you pray for anybody night and day? Paul prayed for Timothy. One he longs to see in verse 4, uh, in whom Paul is convinced he has sincere faith in verse 5, who is gifted by God in verse 6, who has the power of God in verse 7, who has been saved and called by God in verse 9, who has been taught by Paul in verse 13, who has been enriched, enriched by God in verse 14, if he has any idea of turning from Paul and his ministry, may he focus on these two sets of examples. Two men will, will not receive mercy. Two men have abandoned and turned on one that served them, and they will suffer the consequences of that. One man will receive mercy because of his loving, gracious service to Paul and to the Lord himself. So he's turning to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, look, look at these examples set before you, and restructure, refocus your attention on these things. I've been writing a book for a long time called A, a Thousand Mondays. Uh, it's a book written based on 2 Timothy for, for pastors who uh, wake up on Monday morning wanting to quit. A lot of pastors uh, on Monday morning is very difficult. And I thought about writing a book along that line. I've got it kind of done, but nobody wants to publish it. So I don't know how, where that's going to go. But I know a lot of pastors struggle. A lot of men of God struggle. A lot of you are struggling. What is, it, what is Paul calling Timothy to do? A refocus on that which is important, retaining the sound word, refocusing on Christ, refocusing on the gospel. This is chapter one that he's dealing with here. If you take a pair of binoculars and you look out the window at something and you can't see anything, the problem is probably not the binoculars, it's a focus. You adjust the focus and you see differently. If we look at life through the lens of our troubles, and our problems, and our difficulties, and our, our, our heartaches, we many times don't see Christ, and we don't see his word. I, I encourage you very much, guys, as we go through this time together today, that you turn all that around as Paul is turning it around for Timothy. Start with the word on every issue, whether it's a personal struggle, a problem at home, a, a problem at work, whether it's books you're reading and fads or trends that are going down, whether it's something that's, that's right now is, is big on the internet or whatever that might be, always start with Scripture. 
Start with the teachings of Scripture, the sound words of the Word of God. Be students of that, and then take all of that, whatever those other issues are, and take them through the grid of the Word of God. When you take those things through the grid of the Word of God, it refocuses, it changes, it adjusts our understanding and our reactions to those things. If we start with our problems, we often never get back to the Word and we never get back to Christ. We start with Christ and His Word that frames and adjusts and focuses all of the things. And so I encourage you today as we go through this, and we're going just to the Scriptures, we're looking at the Word of God, we're teaching what God says, I encourage you to, to focus on that. What does the divine Word, the, the God-breathed Word say to us about being men of God? Because that is the only place that tells us fully and truly what a man of God looks like. And we will be looking at more of that as the day progresses along. So that's our, our first session together on discouragement. And we're going to look at, at the next passage next time. We're going to actually be looking a little different than your notes. And we're going to be looking at some of the deluding philosophies, some of the trends, some of the things that uh, cause us to be distracted from the things of God so easily. So let me, let me close this in a word of prayer and we'll turn it over to Ryan. Father, we thank you now for this time in the Word. Lord, we know that every man comes here with unique situations, uh, unique concerns. Some have come here, Lord, reluctantly today. Others are excited. Some are burdened heavily. Some are, some are not. And Lord, we all have our seasons of life. But I pray for these men, Lord. I pray for this fellowship. I pray for the opening of your Word. I pray that what the things that we'll look at together today will be things that truly encourage us in Christ. And that we go out of here being men who are refocused on you, on what matters, and on the Word of God. We pray in your name. Amen.